I'm Dino Madrumathu, and this is Classical Music Decoded, a podcast dedicated to making classical music more understandable. Today, we'll take a look at Beethoven's Symphony No. 3 in E-flat major, the Eroica. The symphony caused a stir at its first public performance in Vienna in 1805. Musicians liked it, but concertgoers were not so sure. Over time, it came to be seen as one of the greatest symphonies in the canon of Western classical music. Now, I'm genuinely excited, not only because of the symphony, but also because of my guest, who is conductor Bernard Guller. He has worked extensively with the major orchestras in this country, such as the Johannesburg Philharmonic, the KZN Philharmonic, and the Cape Town Philharmonic. There's no doubt that he has made an important contribution to keeping orchestral performance alive in South Africa. Mr. Guerlier has also conducted extensively in Canada and in fact all over the world and has worked with distinguished orchestras such as the Stuttgart Radio Symphony Orchestra as well as the Munich Philharmonic. Welcome Maestro. Nice to be here. Good morning. It's Thank lovely. you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, before we get into Beethoven Symphony Number no. 3, tell me a little about yourself, how you started as a conductor, and under whom did you serve your apprenticeship? Well, I, start, I would say every conductor has a different way to get there where he then ended up as a conductor. I was first in, a, in, in an orchestra for 20 years. I was a cellist in the radio orchestra in Stuttgart, but the wish to be a conductor was always very strong from a very young age. And, but then I thought, well, how do I do this? I'm here, a cellist in the orchestra. Um, do I leave the, the, the orchestra and, and see what, what happens then? And so but then there was a competition from the German radio stations. And I thought, that's my last chance. And I took part in this, and I won it, and so the whole thing started. Then I, I still played a long time in the orchestra and conducted, did both, and I had a very uh, tolerant employer so that I could go when I had to conduct other orchestras. But then it became so, f so much that my employer said, yeah, um, we cannot pay you a, a whole salary, but you're never here. So we said, okay, then a certain period, unpaid leave, and, and we'll see what then happens. Yeah, and then came an invitation to Cape Town, and after a short time, they uh, offered me the position of a, a principal conductor, and I thought, that's the chance to change the profession. And so I did. And then since 97, 98, I am and conducting only. All right, you mentioned that you had an employer, and I understand that you served as uh, an assistant, a conductor to a very famous conductor. Yeah, assistant is maybe a bit too much, but I'm sure you talk about Sergio Celebitake. Yes. He was... Uh, music director when I started in the uh, radio orchestra, he was there at, uh, shortly before, shortly after. He became music director there. And that was, of course, unbelievably fortunate. Because that, uh, what you could learn there, 
sitting in the orchestra, taking part in this process from the first rehearsal to the concert, was unbelievable. I, I, I heard and experienced much more than all the students in the audience which were sitting far away. They didn't hear what he said. Um, yeah, and then uh, um, a bit later, after I won this competition, he also in, invited me to his München, uh, Munich Philharmonic Orchestra. And I, yeah, I, I had, I profited quite a lot from from this relationship. It could have been more if he would have been a normal, a more normal person. <laughs> but he was the most difficult person you, you can imagine. So it was very difficult to, 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 to this, to have a kind of a relationship to him. But, yeah, it worked. And uh, I mean, he wanted that I leave the orchestra and travel with, around with him through the world. I said, I can't do this. I have family. I have to earn money. He respected this. And, and I'm very, very glad that he did, because usually he doesn't ex uh, ex um, respect any objections or whatever you said no or what. Yeah, and so, so it came. Then he left and made life a little bit artistically poorer, but on the other hand also a bit easier. Now, <laughs> now, Beethoven was famously deaf, but he wasn't born that way. Yeah. He started losing his hearing uh, just before he turned 30, and there was a gradual deterioration until his mid-40s or so, by which time he was completely deaf. Now, that was a tragic situation, because you have a person who deals in sound losing his hearing. Mm -hmm. And this leads us to the Heiligenstadt Testament, mm -hmm. which is a letter that Beethoven wrote after his deafness was confirmed by doctors. Mm -hmm. yeah. What's contained within this document? Well, that was actually this, this uh, becoming deaf was only part of, 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 this, of this testament. It was a general complaint about miserable, miserable life and about the frustrations he had and the because he himself was a very difficult personality and it was more or less an announcement of a suicide because there was not only deafness he was chronically sick with his digestion system and he there was all lots of pain and he was always suffering, actually, through his whole life, he was suffering. And then, on top of this, as a musician, deafness, which started, actually, already some years before, very, very little, but he mentions this, mentions this already in letters, that he has some problems with the ear, and he doesn't know, and, that, and then it became more and more, and, and it is an unbelievable tragedy, and he, then, when it became very bad, he, for example, took a shoehorn and crashed it against the wall just to, to have some hearing experience, some sensations. Or he put wooden boxes on the, on the piano that, that could somehow increase or enforce the sound. Or he, then, when he played, and he could hear a little bit, he played so loud that he could hear some because he was a fantastic pianist mm -hmm. in earlier times. It was a tragedy. You can't imagine a bigger tragedy than this. Certainly for a composer, yes. Yeah. But I, I mean, it's maybe cruel to say this, 
For him it was horrible. For us, or for the, for the audience, for the music lovers, it was maybe an advantage because he was not polluted by all the other music which happened around him. Ah, he was absolutely right. uninfluenced. He was only concentrated on his own thing. And there were some very unusual inventions, which I doubt he would have done if he would have heard it. And if he would have heard so many other things, because you are influenced by what you hear, whether you wish or not. That is actually a very a perspective that, that I'd never considered before, mm -hmm. that, you know, it worked out in some way to Beethoven's advantage mm -hmm. in that it, it made him an original. Yeah, I'm sure he didn't see it like that. Oh, of course. But it's, yeah. Now, in the symphony, there is the idea of the hero. And what's the origin of this idea? That's, uh, it's a bit uh, a dark story because there are many different... Uh, theories and, and reports. Some say it is a, a French diplomat told him how about writing something to glorify Napoleon. Others say he was motivated to write the symphony by Napoleon's victories in Egypt. Some say the funeral march was inspired by the death of Lord Nelson. One doesn't really know what was the reason that the end it was dedicated to a heroic man or human being. The story that he scratched it out because after Napoleon crowned, crowned himself and one also doesn't know, but there is an interesting quotation from Beethoven. I have to read this. After Napoleon put the crown on his head, he says, now Napoleon is nothing but an ordinary being. Now he will trample the rights of men under foot and pander to his own ambition. He will place himself high above his fellow creatures and become a tyrant. How wise, how foreseeing. Yes. So that would support the theory that he was uh, appalled that he made himself emperor, and but one doesn't actually know exactly what happened. Right, but there are theories. Now, groundbreaking and revolutionary are words that are often used to describe the Eroica. What is, or what was, so groundbreaking about this work? Uh, actually, everything. I think it is one of the of the greatest achievements, artistic achievements, ever made. When That's quite a bold statement. Yeah, mm. yeah. And the magnitude of this step from the music before and to the Eroica is actually at least as big as 100, 120, 30 years later from tonality to atonality with Schoenberg. Wow. That was also a big change. But this, with the Eroica, was, was, was unbelievable. There is no preparation for this. It's just suddenly there's something completely new. And that in an artistically convincing uh, way. I, I mean, we can use some little 
excerpts from the from the piece to make it clear of course what I am talking about sure so that would be great one could describe the repertoire of Western uh, music in three parts roughly the biggest part are the real great pieces by like by, by, by Bach, Mozart, Schumann, Schubert, Tchaikovsky, and so on. Then there is a smaller group of composers who were very important for the development, for pushing uh, uh, music forward, who were revolutionary, like Berlioz or mm -hmm. Liszt, Charles Ives. But from an artistic point of view, they don't really belong to the first category the first tier of, of right. composers. And then there is a very small group of pieces, which you can probably count on one hand, which are both works of absolute highest artistic quality and being absolutely revolutionary, open a completely new musical world. And this piece, Eroica, is one of them, if not the most amazing one. Try and go back 220 years. You only know music by Bach, Telemann, Vivaldi, Mozart, Haydn, a bit early Beethoven. And then you go to a concert and expect actually more or less that music, mm, what, yes. you, what you know. And then you hear this, two E-flat major chords jumped at you and music has changed forever. <laughs> I like that E-flat major beginning. I think of them as two hammer blows. <laughs> bum, yeah. bum. As if somebody opens a, a window for the first time. So, and here's the new world. Yes. Absolute confident and... Even these two chords are already unbelievable. When you, when you remember, when you go back, how other symphonies started, the great symphonies by Haydn or Mozart, you hear... After this, you hear uh, asymmetric, irregular rhythms. Dissonances, not only for a moment, but he insists on it. There are parts which have only rhythms, no melody. This piece is much louder and more aggressive than ever before. The first movement is as long as a Mozart symphony or Haydn symphony. Yeah, the first movement is about 20 minutes. Yeah. The woodwinds play a much bigger role than before. 
They sometimes scream there like in a Mahler symphony. The most amazing movement in this symphony, the funeral march, has climaxes of excessive drama and passion. There was nothing before which came even close to this, no matter how big the name was. About that funeral march, it seems to me to be rather an unusual choice to include a funeral march in a symphony. Was it common practice for composers at that time? No, I can't think of any symphony who has a movement named funeral march. That's also something very new. And about these excessive emotional outbreaks, you can hear it in this example. At the end of this second movement, he takes the melody from the beginning and cuts it into pieces and puts it together in an irregular way. That was an outlook into the 20th century. The very fast scherzo has an interesting trio. Remarkable is how he gets back from the trio into the scherzo. When he repeats the trio, it has a normal ending. When he goes back to the scherzo, when he repeats the trio, to go back to the, to the uh, scherzo, he leaves the trio open-ended. It has no real end. He just starts the scherzo again.
Another unusual chain breaker happens shortly before and when he pushes the 3-4 uh, melody into a, an, an a la breve bar. The last movement is the most normal part of the Eroica, as if he wanted to calm down the audience a bit. I would give a year, maybe two, of my life if I could have taken part in the premiere of this thing. Not be, to see how the, how the audience there reacted, but to see how I would have reacted if something like this is told to me the first time. Things which I've never thought about. Words of emotions of, of, which I've never knew existed. And suddenly this is told to me in an understandable language. That's the most important thing, in an understandable language. Very often you can hear from these 20th century composers when they had no big success or when there was lots of resistance. They said, yeah, that was when Beethoven with his last string quartets, he had problems and Wagner, but they didn't understand and that. It's not true. They understood it. Maybe they didn't like what they hear. Mm -hmm. Maybe they were shocked what they heard, but they understood the language. Yes, I think that's, that's an important point. Like when I listened to the Symphony No. 3 by Beethoven, I didn't understand it, but I still found it engaging. Mm -hmm. But with some other music, and perhaps especially with music made during the 20th century, I also didn't understand it, but I didn't find it terribly engaging. There was nothing that drew me to the music that made me want to find out more about yeah. it. That what is written between the lines. What Mahler said, the most important things in music, it's not written in the, in the score or in the music. It's more or less what you, what you find and what you then can bring out. If there is nothing, you can't bring anything out, you don't feel engaged. Yes. Yeah, this, this uh, understandable language or understandable, understandable grammar, that is the most important thing. In, 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 in lots of 20th century music, you always need explanations. Yes, yes. If you need explanations for a piece of music, there is something wrong. There are pieces of the 20th century you don't need explanations. They really work immediately. But there are not that many, my opinion. What were the innovations in the symphony? Because innovative is another word that I've often heard used to describe it. What were the things that Beethoven did in the Eroica that other composers hadn't done before him? For example, the form, especially the form of the first movement with this until then unheard length, a long, long exposition than a long coda. Coda was always a little ten bars or at the end. For him the coda is almost as, as, uh, as long as uh, exposition. I mentioned already the role of the woodwinds. They have much more to do. Mm -hmm. They are much more in the center of, of the, what's going on. Also the, the volume, which people were also a bit upset about, uh, that it's that that loud. 
also the aggression sometimes. Yeah, and then these rhythmical or arrhythmical, asymmetric rhythm, we had it in, in some of the examples, which also nobody did even remotely like this. But the most, the, the, the most important and biggest step forward, which puts him further, furthest away from everything what was before, that was the funeral march, and there this, this, uh, this unbelievable expressivity is that a real word? Yes, that is, that's a real word. That, that is for me the biggest miracle. How, where does this come from? So his inner life, his personality, must have been quite different to anybody else, which also made him a, a difficult person to deal yes. with. Yes, yes. Very important thing with, with Beethoven is this, this ability to write a piece, a big piece, from almost nothing. I mean, when you think about how many melodies Schubert and Brahms and Tchaikovsky and, and oh, yes. needed, he, I mean, da, 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 it's not even a motive. That's, mm -hmm. that's a signal for him enough to build a huge uh, movement. Right, so he can spin that out into an entire movement just using a little fragment. And sometimes he goes long, long, long passages without a melody, just with rhythm, like in the seventh symphony, the first movement. He goes and goes and there's no melody, but it fascinates you nevertheless. If someone had to ask you, look, I'm going to listen to a live performance of the symphony number no. three in Eroica, what are the most important things that I should pay attention to? Um, what he does rhythmically, especially in this symphony, and especially in the first movement. How he um, uses woodwinds, compare it with what happened before, and how he can produce these emotional outbreaks, especially in the funeral march. And then the variation technique. I mean, people, I, I can't imagine how people who, are, who were fairly sensitive, how they lived through this very passionate second half of the funeral march. They actually, I, I, I would imagine you, you, you would freak out, you would go mad if you hear this. Because it, it, it's difficult for me today, especially when I conduct this, that I'm not I mean, nothing is really new for us. We have done it, we have heard it a hundred times, we have played it a hundred times, we have conducted it a hundred times. And still, each time you do this piece, it grabs you. And that is a quality which not many pieces have. And it shows the unbelievable power of spirit which this man has, mm -hmm. that he grabs us until today, two, over 200 years later. It's the sign of a truly great work of art. Yeah. yeah, you feel a bit uncomfortable that somebody has this power. Maybe you are, maybe should pick it for that he was a musician and not a politician. <laughs> yeah. Now, I've attended many concerts over the years that you conducted, and I know that you, like many conductors, you put a tremendous amount of work and effort into ensuring that we get the best possible performance. And so 
thank you for all the work that you've done over the years. It's greatly appreciated by me and I'm certain by many other concert goers as well. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Bernard Gurler, a respected conductor who has been active in South Africa for many years. If you would like to contact him, log on to bernardgurler.com. That's B-E-R-N-A-R-D-G-U-E-L-L-E-R.com. The recording of the Beethoven Symphony No. 3 was by the Symphony Nova Scotia, conducted by Maestro Guler. This is Classical Music Decoded. I'm Dino Madrumuthu. This podcast was produced by Cantata Media, and take a listen to the other episodes in the series.